So during this Advent season, we are considering the theme, when love appeared. When love appeared, when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us not because of righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy, He saved us. He saved us from the foolishness of self-centeredness. He saved us from the foolishness of self-deception. He saved us from the foolishness of self-sufficiency. And this morning, we're going to consider a passage of Scripture uh, that um, exalts the Lord who saved us from the foolishness of self-righteousness. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 21, and we're going to be looking at verses 23 to 46. And you'll find that on page 827 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, please feel free to take the uh, copy that's in the pouch in front of you and put your name on it and receive it as a gift from uh, this church family. Page 827 is where you'll find Matthew chapter 21, and I'm going to be reading verses 33 to 46. Jesus is telling a parable in these verses. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes... What will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, that's the crowd responding to Jesus, he will put those wretches to a miserable end, uh, to a miserable death, and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? And take note, church, because whenever Jesus uses the phrase, have you never read in the Scriptures? The very next thing he says is about him. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone or the capstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. 
And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is God's word. I know, I know, I know. Doesn't sound like a Christmas passage. Or is it? I mean, Jesus is in it. Jesus tells it. It's one of those autobiographical parables. It's a parable about Jesus, told by Jesus. And it's a parable that contains both his birth and his death. Did you catch that? His incarnation and his crucifixion. His birth into the world and his death for the world. He told the parable sometime between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. The triumphal entry had already occurred. The clearing out of the temples had already occurred. The Pharisees and the chief priests and the religious enemies were already furious with him. And then in Matthew chapter 21, they had gotten into an argument with Jesus. Earlier in that chapter, you can see, they questioned the authority of Christ. In fact, they asked him just that very question. They said, who gave you the authority to do what you're doing? My little brother asked my mother that one time. She was about ready to discipline him. (laughs) Who gave you the authority to do what you're doing? He did. He found out. Pharisees and scribes asked Jesus that very question. Who gave you the authority to do what you're doing? Jesus said, all right, I'll answer your question. But first, let me ask you something. He's a good rabbi. Whenever you ask a rabbi a yes, no question, a rabbi who's really good will never answer with a yes or no. Instead, a rabbi will tell a story. That's how it works. Or ask another question. That's how it works. So Jesus says, I'll, I'll answer your question, but let me ask you a question. John's baptism. John the Baptist? John's baptism from heaven or from man? What say ye? Oh, they huddled up. and They were in checkmate. They knew right there. Well, if we say from heaven, he'll ask us, well, why didn't you believe him? If we say from man, well... All the crowd thought John the Baptist was a prophet. And and they loved the praise of men more than they loved the praise of God. So they wouldn't. So they said to him, we don't know. We don't know. 
you don't know. Really? Okay. Neither will I tell you by what authority that I do what I do. But then he went on ahead and did. You see, see, that's the point of the parable. Like I said, a good rabbi never answers a yes, no question with a yes, no. He tells a story. So here's the story. It's a story about a landowner. And over and over in the Gospels, as we read about this parable of the noble landowner, the noble landowner, this phrase appears in Matthew and Mark and Luke's gospel, those three contain this parable. This question, it's the question, what shall I do? What shall I do? It's about a landowner who asked and answered the question, what shall I do? What shall I do? Well, a landowner, I shall build myself a vineyard. And so the parable is about a landowner who bought a tract of undeveloped land and cleared out all of the brush and the trees and the vegetation and there was wonderful soil and prepared the soil for this vineyard that the landowner was going to plant and then the landowner built a fence around this property to mark the property off and then and then the landowner built wine presses Wine presses, what are those? Well, let me show you what wine presses are. Uh, that's an example of a first century wine press. It's a smaller version of one. And what you've got there basically are two basins. The basin up at the top uh, right corner, let's back up just a little bit, uh, is where the grapes would go. And then the, uh, uh, the, the tenants would then stomp on the grapes. The juice would then run down that little drain there that you see into the larger basin there on the bottom left-hand corner of the screen. That, that was a smaller version of it. Uh, but for more complex operations, you'd have what we've got here now. These huge, huge uh, uh, areas where the grapes would be set, and you can see how it all kind of drains into the center. That is where the wine would be gathered. And, and all of that had to be either hewn or developed or built with a first century technology. So you've got first century technology ripping up the vegetation of the land and the trees and fencing off the area and building those wine presses. And uh, then uh, there's the stakes. And then after all of this, you've got the tower that's built that surveys the entire property uh, for either uh, 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 animals who would raid the grapes or even thieves who would come and steal from the harvest, which happened back then. You've got this tower to oversee all of this. That's what's going on here in these verses. And then after all of that has been prepared, after the land has been purchased and it's been cleared and it's been uh, furrowed for the grapevines and the fences and the wine presses and the tower, then the landowner interviews and hires tenants who will steward this property. And, and there's an arrangement that's made, and the arrangement is that they will share the profit from his fruit. Did you notice that there? His fruit. It's his. It's not theirs, you know? If you were in charge, and you had bought the land, and you'd cleared it out, it would be yours. Everybody knows whose it is. Everybody knows who the owner is and who the tenants are. That much is clear. And so all of this time and capital has been set up, and now the tenants are there, 
And then he's going to go into another country. That's verse 33. All of that's taking place. Verse 33. Verse 34 says, When the season for fruit drew near. When is that? That's five years later. How do you know this, Pastor? Because this was Jerusalem. This is the temple. This is a Hebrew culture. They were very attuned with the law. The book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verses 23 and 24, which stipulate when you're in the land and you plant fruit-bearing vegetation that has not been previously planted there, for the first three years, you may not touch any of the fruit. Year four, you take the harvest and you bring it to God. It's His. All of it. And then in year five, now you can share the harvest. So this is labor intensive. It's capital intensive. It's time intensive. It's year five between verse 33 and 34. So it's time. The season for fruit drew near. So the landowner did what you would do if you were the landowner. Sent his servants with the carts to collect the crop. And maybe they were, he was going to just collect the, the, the grapes right there. And, or maybe he was going to collect the grapes which had, uh, been, uh, 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 had become wine. Anyway, it's, I mean, it's his. He's sending his servants. He's going to take it. When the servants show up in the transportation vehicles there by the wine press... The tenants rush the cab, drag the drivers out, beat them mercilessly over and over again, abuse them, beat them, killed them. The landowner's like, what's this about? How he didn't call the authorities to have these tenants arrested is beyond my comprehension. But the owner says, this says, there must be some misunderstanding. Let me send some other servants. And so that's exactly what he does, right? Again, verse 36, he sent other servants, more than the first, more than the first. And they did the same to them. And now the owner is startled by this this maniacal defiance the owners okay what will I do that's what Luke's gospel says what shall I do I will send my son I will send my beloved son and they'll respect him they'll respect him and so that's what he did he sent his son his beloved son his only son. The son came alone. The son came unarmed. The son came as the exact representation of his father. The son came as the incarnation of his father's presence. His son came in peace to peacemake this unfortunate rift between his father and these maniacal tenants. Uh, his father, the rightful owner of this vineyard, and these tenants who, 
Well, they knew what the agreement was. They, they understood the stipulations. They, they had, but they broke it in defiance. The son came to make peace, unarmed and alone. And the scripture says that when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, verse 38, this is the heir. How did they know that this son was the heir? How did, he, how did they know he was the exact representation of his father? How did he know that he was the incarnation of his father's own presence? How did he know? Well, you could just see him. How he talked. How he walked. How he conducted his life. It was very obvious, even to these rebel tenants, who this son was, the rightful heir. And when they saw him, they said, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And that's what they did. They took him and they murdered him unarmed, alone. And then they threw his corpse out of the vineyard. And you know, you could have heard a pin drop as Jesus said, verse 40. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And the owner's coming. The owner's coming. What will he do? Someone in the crowd yelled out. Literally. Literally. He will bring those bad men to a bad end. And then he'll lease the vineyard out to other tenants who will share his fruit. I mean, it was quiet. And all of the eyes fell upon the Pharisees and the scribes because they were in the crowd too. And verse 45 says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And they were right. He was. And they would have arrested him right then if it weren't for the people because they, they loved the praise of the people more than they loved the praise of God, see. Yeah. Wow, talk about responding to a sermon, huh? I mean, who likes to be accused of being a murderer, especially in a church service? Yeah. I think this parable got to them. And you know what? I think this parable gets to us, too. Really. I think it's one of those stories that just kind of sneaks up on us. And here's what I mean by that. You know, you know who's who in this parable, right? I mean, God is the owner. And the religious leaders and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, 
Those, those are the tenants whom God has granted the privilege of stewarding that which belongs to him. And their mission was to tend and care for the vineyard. And the vineyard represents the covenant people of God. The people of Israel, the people of promise, and having set this vineyard up and provided the tools and the implements for its growth, God shared the responsibility of the health of his vineyard, his covenant people, shepherding and nourishing and protecting and developing and growing this beautiful garden of grapevines. He shared it with the leadership. And the intent of that partnership was that the creator God, out of his loving kindness, would share the privilege. And shepherding God's people is a privilege Delegated by God so that there might be a celebration and a joy of harvest. It's good work. It's good work. But these religious leaders became corrupted. And they began to think that the vineyard was their vineyard. And that the land was their land. And that the crop was their crop. And the, the, the prophet was their prophet. And the people were, well, they're, they're their people. It's mine. It's about me. They need me. And this caused them to see themselves as the standard by which they would judge everyone else. And by the way, that's a very good definition for the word self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is when I become the measuring stick by which I measure everybody else. Self-righteousness will cause you to compare yourself to others. Self-righteousness will cause you to feel smug and morally superior to others. Self-righteousness will cause you to look down on others who aren't like you. It'll cause you to think that you're someone you're not. It'll cause you to think that you're the owner when you're a tenant. And when confronted... You'll remind yourself of your righteousness. And when questioned, you'll defend your righteousness. And when asked, you'll become far too skilled at assigning blame than shouldering blame. And all of this, all of this will occur without your awareness because you think you're perfectly okay. Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness will cause you to be a difficult person who makes it impossible for those around you to help you see that you're a difficult person. And you'll confuse being an ambassador to the king for being the king. Self-righteousness, oh, it's a deadly infection. It's a deadly infection. And the Pharisees and scribes had it. And Jesus called them out on it. And he may be calling some of us out on it too. This week, it's going to be hard for some of us to enjoy Christmas the way we would like to enjoy Christmas. And there are many reasons for that. But some of you... You know why you won't enjoy Christmas the way you'd like to enjoy Christmas? 
And this is hard, but hear me, church. The birth of Christ will never mean as much as it could mean as long as you think that you're more righteous than you really are. See, self-righteousness is why we aren't more amazed at the grace of God. Self-righteousness is why we, we don't live with a sense of deep need for God's grace, and therefore, we don't appreciate God's grace when it's given. And the result is foolishness. Self-righteousness truly reduces us to the level of fools. I mean, look at this parable here. Look at what's going on with the tenants. As the parable progresses, they become progressively foolish. I mean, they've lost touch with reality. At first, they abuse the servants of the landowner, and now then they beat them, and then they kill them. They're maniacal in their abuse of God's servants, which represent the prophets. Of old, Isaiah, Samuel, Jeremiah, Elijah, John the Baptist, God sent his prophets over and over again to call his people back to himself. What shall I do? The landowner said. No first century landowner would pause at that question because no first century landowner would have exercised what one scholar calls absurd patience. Absurd patience. A man in the Roman world, a landowner treated this way, would have called for armed troops who would have surrounded the vineyard, flushed out the rogue tenants, and put those tenants up on a cross. That's what that, that's what a typical Roman landowner would have done. But this landowner pauses. What will be done with the anger generated by this injustice? This landowner is in a position of power and retaliation is expected. But is further violence the only answer? What shall I do? I will send my son alone and unarmed to meet these vicious men. And that's what God did. Climactically, he sent his beloved son to the vineyard when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done. He saved us because of his merciful love. And that's what Christmas is, church family. Christmas is God's absurd patience to the foolishness of my self-righteousness. <laughs> Even rebels have hope because the baby Jesus was born to rescue rebels from themselves. Christ offered his life so that we may be offered life forever with him. And God meets the foolishness of self-righteousness with the only thing that has the power to defeat it, the birth of his Son. And make no mistake in these verses, Jesus is the beloved Son. <laughs> Jesus knows who he is in these verses. There's no confusion about his identity. John chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. And it was clearly understood in early Christianity, early Christianity, who Jesus is. Thus, Hebrews 1 
1 through 3, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. He, that is the Son, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus knows exactly who he is. And what the tenants did to that son in the parable was what the self-righteous leaders did to the son on that Good Friday. For outside the city, Jesus, not the tenants, was crucified. Outside the city, the justice due for their treason was put upon him. Outside the city, the beloved of God died for the very fools who put him on the cross. What wondrous love is this. No, I think this is a perfect Christmas passage. Yeah. It's a perfect Christmas passage. Sin reduces us to fools. But thank God the story doesn't end with that. The vulnerable son of the vineyard is at one and the same time the immovable an unbreakable capstone of verse 42. And Westerners read this and think, wait a minute, this, talk about mixed metaphors. I, I, thought, I thought the story was about a son and a vineyard. Now we're talking about architectures and stones. Well, what is up with that? Well, Jesus wasn't talking to Westerners. He was talking to the Hebrew people. And, and the Hebrew people loved to play on words. And there's a play on words here. There really is. Let me show you what I mean. The word for son in verse 37 is the word ben. Ben. The word for stone in verse 42 is the word for eben. So you see the ben who was rejected and arrested, and tried, and executed, and then vindicated in his resurrection body as the Eben, the capstone, the capstone that supports and sustains the entire structure. You know what a capstone is, don't you? So this is an ancient structure. And what's supporting that? The capstone is right there. There it is, right in the middle. The capstone. And so the stone that the builders rejected, there's a bunch of stones there just laying around on the ground. And the builders are looking and trying to fit, and they throw that stone away. Oh, this is no good. Throw that away. But the one that was thrown away, no, that's the one that's going to be there in the middle to keep the entire structure intact. And that stone is not going anywhere. 
That stone speaks of both the incarnation of the Son, the crucifixion of the Son, and the resurrection of the Son. There you have it. This is an autobiographical parable about the Son. The Son. Because Christmas is not merely about the birth of a great leader. Christmas is the arrival of creation's king from whom all of life is derived and on whom all of life is built. This vulnerable human baby is at one and the same time the immovable capstone who demands your life. And so the parable's question now comes to us. What will we do? What will we do? What will we do? You know what? Over and over in our Advent season, we've been trying to make the point that you know, when love appeared, when the kindness and mercy of God our Savior He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His love, because of His mercy. You matter to God. We want you to know that in no uncertain terms. But here in this parable, Jesus flips the question and He wants to know the answer to one simple question. Does God matter to you? Do I love the one who came in love as love in the flesh? Am I really willing to surrender my self-centeredness and my self-righteousness to the one who came to rescue me from me? What will I do? What will I do? What will we do? Well, I know the answer to that question. I do, because I know us. We gather here weekly in worship because we are on a lifelong pursuit of Christ who out of His absurd patience and love allows us to manage what belongs to Him. Verse verse 41, we are the tenants who've responded to the question, what will we do? (laughs) We're... We're those privileged other tenants. That's who we are. And so as we gather as a church community to worship and learn and live the word, we answer that question, what will we do? And the missions trips that we've taken and will take, Peru and Haiti and the Dominican Republic, all answer the question, what will we do? This week, Lisa Sheltra sent Uh, Valina Claiborne, our outreach director here at the church, and myself, a a link to a News Gazette article that was dated December the 10th, in which our church family was mentioned just in one sentence, but wow, it it was a what will we do type of sentence as the paper acknowledged this church's key support for the pilot project, Cradle to Career Initiative, not just money, but volunteers. That article answers the question, what will we do? And yes, the financial generosity that I've seen and been amazed and in awe of the past two years in our all-in answers the question, what will we do? I look at last week's harvest from God's vineyard, and I just... And shake my head in worship of it all. 
And here's the deal. When you know the grapes aren't yours, you'll enjoy them more and share them more. Yeah. See, the Pharisees and scribes could never enjoy the wine because they spent too much time trying to convince everyone that it was theirs. We serve in God's vineyard. And that vineyard consists of His covenant people in Christ from every tribe and race and nation and tongue. And we serve not in order to be loved, but because God, who is love, has sent His love to rescue us from self-love. And it's a love that appeared in the manger. And it's a love that hung on the cross. And it's a love that rose from the dead. It's a love that lives. Now then, what will you do with that love? What will you do? I know. I know. Let's go to Bethlehem. And let's go worship at the church of the nativity. Sarah and I got to do that about 20 years ago. And you go into the church of the nativity, which is 1,500 years, you know. And, uh, and then you enter this massive worship area, this basilica. And then near the front, you go in through the side, and there are some steps that lead down the back, downstairs. And then at the bottom of these steps is a small little, little, little bit cave-like enclave. Grotto is what they call it. And there's a star there. And that's, that's the site of Christ's birth right there. amazing but to get to and through all of that you can go but in order to enter the church of the nativity to see the grotto you've got to enter through a door that everybody who walks in walks through that door it's called the door of humility the door of humility and why because to enter, you have to stoop. Our time in weekly communion is a time for us as a church family to stoop before Christ and to prepare us to receive the Lord's Supper. Um, I'm going to have us read a responsive prayer. And we've been reading responsive prayers throughout Advent. Uh, so participate with me.